Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Nick Parker. Creative director, magazine editor, keynote speaker, one-time Viz cartoonist and bad trumpet player, Nick is now the brains behind That Explains Things, the language strategy agency he founded in 2015. It was in this role that he created Voicebox, a completely new way of thinking about tone of voice, which has been used to help clients like BT, Tesco and Spotify and he is also the author of the amazingly titled The Exploding Boy and Other Tiny Tales. Nick says, I love meeting new people, finding out new things, having new experiences, running workshops, doing pitches, all of that. But the introvert in me still does a little dance when I check tomorrow's calendar and see that I've got no calls and no meetings, just writing time. Welcome to the show, Nick. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I've never been greeted by one of my own tweets being read out before. That is a terrifying. <laughs> we probably could have chosen worse. <laughs> that is really true. Yes, I like the Pokemon analogy. My son is very excited because apparently our toilet downstairs has become a Pokemon spawning site. <laughs> no. <laughs> Amazing. Right, seven quickfire questions. Mac or PC? Mac. Notepad or iPad? Notepad. Fact or fiction? Oh, oh, both. Trumpet or piano? Uh, <laughs> it's, piano, it's much better. I'm kept very far away from trumpet. <laughs> Uni or Siggy? <laughs> <laughs> Neither. They're horrible words. <laughs> University cigarette is the correct pronunciation. Right. Picasso or Hokusai? Oh, God. That is an impossible choice. I'll have to go both again. And lastly, Firestarter or Storyteller? Oh, interesting. Oh, Storyteller. Storyteller. Good stuff. We well, sailed through those, Nick. What was your first job, Nick? And then what was your first writing job? Oh, interesting. My first job, I'm just trying to think. There was sort of paper rounds and that sort of thing. They don't really count. Um, I, was a, I was a door repairman's assistant. Oh, my God, I haven't thought about this in a long time. So I somehow got a holiday job that involved... Um, <laughs> Being a door repairman's assistant, that doesn't add much more, does it? So uh, the, uh, if you have a shop that has um, a door that sort of self-closes softly, like most shops do, um, the thing that 
the thing that makes the door close softly is called a tranger. And it's like it's like the big hinge that's cemented into the ground at the bottom. I can't believe I'm talking about this in such detail. Um, and um, it's like a hydraulic thing in it. It's got oil in it, and that's what makes it close slowly. Um, uh, but the oil needs regular topping up. And also, basically, they get corroded because blokes piss in shop doors on the way home. <laughs> and this knackers the, um, the workings. So there is an entire industry, or at least there used to be, of people who have to go around, uh, chisel off the crystallised piss and uh, top up the oil. And I was the assistant for the man who used to chisel off the piss and top up the oil. And did they mention that in the job description on the ad? <laughs> I, don't, I don't seem to remember it saying that. Obviously, if you did this job, the holy grail was to graduate onto electric doors. Because they God, were- you don't piss on those more than once. <laughs> There you go. That was my first job. My first writing job was um, the first tiny thing I was paid to write was uh, I submitted a joke to uh, the Radio 4 comedy program Week Ending, um, which I don't know if you remembered. It was a sort of topical news satire show. Um, and at least half the show was taken up with reading the credits at the end because every gag was written by a different contributor who used to fax them in from all corners of the world. I had to fax this from a copy shop. So I had to pay 50p to send the fax and leave it with them. I didn't even know it would get there. And and then it got read out on the radio. And I was absolutely ecstatic. And that thing, I scribbled down a thing on a piece of paper in my room. And then it's read out on the radio later in the week. Just seemed like the most exciting thing in the world. And then the first sort of, I got about 12 quid for that. I, honestly, I spent more in faxes than I ever made in, in joke piece. The first proper sort of thing was I did a cartoon strip for Viz called Quentin Tarantini. He was a baby who swore a lot. Um, <laughs> and weirdly, I mean, I talk about this in workshops. This sort of set me off on a kind of long and winding road to doing what I do now, actually, because... God, we get to that point in uh, in history where some people go, oh, Viz, brilliant. I remember Viz. It's totally amazing. And other people are like, oh, yeah, I think my dad used to read Viz. Before I got paid for this strip that I'd written and drawn, they sent Viz sent me a contract, and the contract had this little box on it that um, you have to t- it says, tick this box if you're VAT registered. And it's got a little note underneath that says, um, if you don't know whether you're VAT registered or not, then you're not if you were, <laughs> believe us, it's a big pain in the arse than piles. I just thought this was like just genius because this was like this was a contract. It was all everything was written in legal speak, except for this tiny little box. And I went through this whole thing of like, a are they allowed to do this because this is like an official document? And then a, like a sort of an epiphany of, of course, they're viz like they're viz all the time. And this was, you know, years and years and years before anyone was talking about tone of voice. But that idea that they, they, they noticed every little detail and made that work really hard for them was just like, I was like, ah, oh, I think I want to do that. That would be really cool. Then it took me about 15 years to actually get around to doing that as a job. Um, so it's a very long answer to your question. What was your first job? So in that 15 years uh, between that stage and then you writing properly or, or professionally what happened how what was that 15 years like 
Uh, so for the 15 years, I was I was still writing. I was working in magazine land, um, writing and editing for magazines. In particular, I spent a long time at a magazine called The Oldie. So yeah, so I was still writing. Uh, I just wasn't writing, like copywriting or working with brands or tone of voice or any of that. Um, I sort of, in fact, I didn't really know anything about that world at all um, until until I sort of fell into it by accident. Oh, cool! What was that accident? So I was working as a journalist. I was at the Oldie Magazine, and I was sort of thinking I wanted to do something different. And well, to cut a long story short, my my wife was a horse whisperer. That's not really cutting a story short, is it? That's opening up a whole other. <laughs> horse whispering is really behavioural psychology for horses. And she was doing a lot of work um, with like leadership coaches and, you know, people who were using uh, working with horses as a way of working with people. And so we'd spend all of our time at home talking about basically behavioral psychology and creativity and leadership and all these things. And I was like, I think I really want to be doing something like that. But with writing, it sounds much more interesting than, you know, sitting at a desk all day. And so that got me looking around for what other things could I do with writing. And I just happened to see a job ad for um, an agency called The Writer who were looking for a trainer. And I just thought, that's it. I'll go and do writing workshops. And I went to see them. And like miraculously, I got the job, uh, even though I'd never run a workshop in my life. I'd never actually been in a corporate workshop. Um, I didn't know what an agency was. I'd uh, never heard this term tone of voice before, but somehow it was sort of like everything fitted. It was like, of course, this is this this is interesting. I can do this. Yeah, and so that that was sort of ten or twelve years ago. I sort of ended up in the world of agencies and tone of voice and brands, uh, and never looked back from there really. And did that feel really nice and comfortable when you started in that in that area? It did, actually, because although it took me a long time to realise this, um, I love writing, but I also really like, well, I like the world of business. I like the problem-solving nature of what we do, you know, of um, businesses are stuck or something isn't working properly, and with words, you can help. And that seems an amazingly practical thing to be able to do as a writer, um, <laughs> given that I'm completely impractical in lots of areas of my life. Um, that, you know, helping people be able to think more clearly or to articulate something they can't put their finger on or to expose like a, a flaw in a strategy or, you know, get people to engage with an idea that previously they didn't think was anything to do with them just through writing. Uh, like amazing what a great thing to do and especially I mean I don't know if you find this being an agency it's like constant speed dating like you just get to go into the, all these different worlds and cultures uh, poke around <laughs> in people's <laughs> psychology uh, learn something new usually and then go on to the next thing like it's a fantastically interesting way of uh, making a living, I reckon. It's nice having that exposure to so much as well. For us, especially because we're media neutral, we don't specialise in any particular industries or verticals or even B2B or B2C. We work on it all because to us, it's more of the process 
yeah. that's key that it does give you sides of so much, so much variety. And that's really interesting. But equally, I think we benefit because it helps keep us sharp. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, it's, again, I was sort of so naive about the agency world when I started. It came as a real shock to me to find that people specialise in like really specialist niches. Like, you know, we specialise in uh, internal comms for medical technology. You're like, what? <laughs> like, I'd just be bored out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange hat to wear, that one. Yeah, and yet lots of people do it. And I can see, I can see, I can see the advantage of it. Um, it's just there's lots more advantages from being, you know, a real generalist and just sort of grazing around. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So do you consider yourself a generalist then? And, and, and as a second part of that question, then you also consider yourself a writer over a copywriter? Yes, I do. I think oh, it's interesting, that question. I'm, I'm a writer. If it's helpful for people to think of some of the stuff I do as copywriting, that's absolutely fine. Uh, but a lot of it isn't. You know, and there are also other things in my life that I write that aren't for business or for brands, uh, and they're all interconnected in some way. Um, so it's just much easier to be a writer. Well, I, I read somewhere that you consider your book of short stories that we mentioned on the intro, The Exploding Boy and Other Tiny Tales, as, as one of the best things you've ever written. Yeah, it's, pro- it's probably for other people to say whether it's one of the best things I've ever written. It's certainly one of the things that I am most proud of. Just Yeah, just because, well, it's 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 a different sort of thing um it's expressing so so the interesting thing i think about fiction writing certainly for me is the work i do with clients is almost always focused on clarity like of expressing something so that everybody gets it or so that you know readers don't have to work unnecessarily hard or even if you're, you know, even if you're writing something quite emotive or storytelling, um, you're always sort of delivering a message that is re- like clear in the heads of the people who want to make it. Um, fiction is very different for me. Like I don't, you know, I still look back at the exploding boy. Each of those stories, which are they're only a couple of pages long, most of them started as ideas for novels. I was like, right, this is it. This will be a really long one. Um, by the time I'd taken out the bits that I thought were boring, left out the bits that I couldn't do, like character and dialogue and plot, what you're left with is about 2,000 words. And I still don't really know what some of them are about. Um, <laughs> and some of them use language in ways that are not clear um, and are much more sort of abstract and poetic. And so I just really like it's a it's a completely different mode for me. You know, you spend you spend all your time working with clients, telling people to use shorter words or shorter sentences, um, say their main thing first and all of that great stuff. But there's something about fiction is like, well, there are no rules. You can do completely the opposite. You're just creating a different sort of effect. Yeah, I can see how that would be really refreshing for a writer, especially because, as you say, you're, you're, you're taught to or you're you know, instructed to write so succinctly for the right reasons. To be effective, you need to be understood. So why, why add any friction with unnecessary words? But some of the, great, the greatest novels are full of verbal garnish. My wife's reading Lord of the Rings at the moment. It's just something she's always wanted to do. 
and it's pages and pages of adjectives and descriptions and this wonderful, beautiful language. Uh, but clearly that's not what you'd end up with in most um, corporate comms. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, if, if William Faulkner had sent As I Lay Dying to a client, <laughs> uh, it would have come back with a lot of track changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also understand, Nick, that you're writing a, a book about anxiety at the moment aimed at young children. Is, is, is that right? Can you tell us more about that? Sort of. So um, I, don't, I, I think you might have picked that up from uh, Catherine Wildman, Wildman's blog. I said that very enthusiastically when she interviewed me about nine months ago. Uh, and since then, it's slowed down considerably. I, yeah, I, um, I, I was look, I'm looking for a way of explaining anxiety to younger people. Um, this is through my own experience of uh, anxiety, like coming to understand my own anxiety, because it seems it's all about the metaphors or the analogies. I think that if you're if you're still at school or you know you're still learning about yourself and a sense of the world and all the rest of it, you can't. You're not going to understand something like anxiety through through the language of um, psychology or you know that sort of stuff. So you know how can you? What is the black dog expression for anxiety that a 10-year-old boy would understand? Yeah. Largely, actually, like that is a very complicated, abstract way of talking about it. Largely, uh, I want to be able to explain to my son some things that might help him uh, deal with his own life. Uh, and I think that would be, uh, that feels like an interesting, like, what would the drawings be like? Uh, what are the metaphors? Um, what would it look like as a little story? Feels like that would be a helpful way of doing it. It's such a great idea. I should. I will pick it up again. I've done some. I've done some drawings and I've done some. Um, yeah. Yes. I should stop yes. being vague about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in terms of writing, then Nick, there, have you got any tips for writing that you can, or that you've discovered over the years that you can pass on to our listeners? Ha! Huh, God, uh, I really should have lots of pearls of wisdom shouldn't I given that my job uh, entails running lots of writing workshops um, I mean it always depends doesn't it <laughs> on the context of what you're doing and what you're writing um, I think the single most effective thing that can improve your writing is simply to write every day that might be sort of doing the artist's way type writing your three daily pages every day a friend of mine swears by that, has been doing that for 15 years. Um, so you just sit down in the morning and write what comes. Sometimes that will come out as a stream of consciousness. Sometimes it will come out as like petty stuff about your shopping or your commute. Other times, you know, more interesting stuff will come out. I find that very helpful, actually. I think the periods where I'm writing most fruitfully, I'm almost always doing some form of just keeping a journal or automatic writing every day. Or that could be blogging or it could be, you know, whatever it is, exercising that bit of your brain, which is turning the sort of mush that's going around in your head into actual sentences without the pressure of a deadline or a client or a project. That is the single most effective thing you can do. There's a poet, a friend of mine, Neil Baker, who runs the Dark Angels writing courses, 
uh, is a big fan of the poet William Stafford, who says that um, the job of as a writer is simply to keep writing until the point where you are uh, saying things that surprise you. That is it, actually, isn't it? Like what you do most of the time is you're writing stuff that you sort of know what's going to come out because you know what the brief was and you know, you know, you're sort of flipping through your um, a big bag of techniques looking for the tool that's going to help to mix a metaphor. Uh, but yeah, so that like sitting down writing every day until stuff comes out that you think, oh, I didn't expect I was going to say that. But that's probably the superpower, I reckon. Yeah, that's a great place to shoot for, isn't it? Let's talk tone of voice then. So we, we, we've we've uh, mentioned tone of voice a couple of times and obviously the Viz contract was a, was a stunning example. Can you define what a tone of voice is and, and why it's important? Yes. So, um, well, your tone of voice is just really, if you are a brand, what, what does your brand look like in words? Like the attitude or the spirit of your brands, how do you express that? through language so you've got all the visual stuff and you might have sound and you've got your opinions and all, all of that values and all that good stuff how do you express that on screen or on paper in words clearly it's going to vary by industry and by business size and type but often you do see copy that's just very functional i would say so when i started at the writer in 2007 2008 uh, we seem to spend most of our time trying to get people to take the idea of tone of voice seriously uh now it seems to me that basically everybody gets it uh everyone sort of instinctively knows it's a good thing even if they don't quite know how to go about it so somewhere along the line over the last 10 or 12 years like everyone is just sort of yeah it's, it's a sort of intrinsic part of the brand world now and i think what's interesting i think is you know, still there are there are people who, if you talk about tone of voice, they'll go, oh, yeah, like innocent drinks, like being funny. And you sort of like, well, no, it's a bit more subtle than that, or there's, you know, a broader range of options. But it tends, and obviously because of lots of stuff being digital, that has just made it more important because brands are just using tons more words, basically, than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And also far more people are writing them you know, in a big organisation, still the visual brand stuff tends to be done by professionals, in inverted commas, you know, the people who've got their, their Macs and they work in design and they're qualified and, you know, the special software and they they have special conversations, you know, and special budgets and that stuff is still reasonably contained. Whereas who provides the copy uh, just could literally come from anywhere. You know, on any given project, that might be um, even on any given individual thing. Some of the copy might come from a, a copywriter in an agency. Some might come from the client who has to, you know, provide that bit themselves. Uh, another bit might be coming from the lawyers who've had to, you know, have their say. You know, so everybody does the words, and so that idea of getting consistency and just agreeing on a common set of principles is much more important when it comes to the words. Yeah, and are there any particular brands, I mean, you've mentioned Innocent there, but are there any other brands perhaps less celebrated that whose tone of voice you you admire? Oh, God, there's so many now. 
I'm trying to think like examples that aren't just the normal things that would come straight to the top of my head. There is an American soap company called Duke Cannon, uh, who are fantastic, and their their whole like their shtick is that basically men have gone soft. They have a line about you know more more time in pottery barn than in real barns, and um, uh, and their voices of this sort of uh, kindly but very disparaging Duke Cannon. The, the, their main product is called a big ass brick of soap. They do that really nicely. Um, I'm a big fan of Lemonade, the insurance company who have like they have quite a quirky sort of friendly tone of voice, but they have applied it to uh, the nuts and bolts of an insurance contract. So the contract itself is just a really, really engaging, interesting piece of writing. I'm I'm a massive fan of Gov.uk actually, um, because although like their voice is sort of the opposite of what most people would think of as a tone of voice, it has no personality. It deliberately has no opinion, and yet it's doing all the good things that a tone of voice is for. You know, it is super helpful to its readers. Uh, it sets the right impression when you visit the site and they have all the challenges you know they must have dozens and dozens of writers they still have to make it super consistent um and you know it's but i think quite a few brands they want they they, they, most people want to use their tone of voice to go look at us look at what we're like it's part of being distinctive as a brand I think what they're doing, which is almost the opposite, is like, don't notice that there is any style going on here at all. Uh, we are complete. This is completely neutral. Uh, it just seems like it was really interesting. Yeah. And it seems appropriate, really, for, for Gov.uk. Yeah. So Sarah Richards, who is the woman who, who headed up the team who put the website together, uh, she, she was like, look, you have to start from the fact that nobody comes to the government's website uh, to be inspired or engaged. You only <laughs> ever come here because something has gone wrong or you owe the government money. So our job is to get out of the way. Yes. It's like that is, you know, that is... That's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, and in its own way, as a writer, that's a really interesting brief. And I guess sort of to follow on to that as well, it's also you can never quite tell for which brands tone of voice is going to be really important because there are some brands who are, you know, very distinctive who you would think it would be really important to have a distinctive tone of voice, but they don't actually do much writing at all. Um, You know, it's much more important that they are visual or um, uh, use music, Uh, you know, quite a lot of fashion brands are sort of like that. Um, actually they you know they say very little whereas other brands like say professional services where you know where the with the sort of overall brand feeling uh, they're not that different to each other it's all about being a safe pair of hands but actually what they do exists largely in writing exists in consultancy documents and powerpoints so the the act of writing is very close to how they think and who they are so there's always an interesting thing, yeah, about sort of who, for who is it going to be really important to absolutely nail the words? You've created something called Voicebox. Can you explain a bit more about Voicebox to our listeners? Yes. So, okay, to explain Voicebox, this started 
when I set up by myself three or four years ago, just thinking how best and simplest to explain what tone of voice is. I was really surprised when I sort of, one of the things that happened when I left agency world was I suddenly found myself in this world of uh, freelance copywriters. And I was really surprised how many professional copywriters who are really experienced um, and could write in lots of different ways still were slightly afraid of the idea of tone of voice or saw it as a bit of dark art and were sort of searching for a way to explain it. I think we're quite bad in general at talking about writing. Um, you know, even like lots of clients who are really clued up and sort of, you know, have a good feel for the language would quite often go, you know, oh, well, you know, we could either be chatty or formal, like this is a sort of binary choice. So I was just looking for ways that, like, how could we have a slightly more objective, clearer conversation about tone of voice? And how, frankly, how, you know, how could people do this if I wasn't in the room, uh, essentially? Like, that would be an interesting product. But also, how do we have a different conversation about tone of voice? Um, was there some new thinking? So it started from that idea. And so it started with this idea that I thought, well, actually, by looking at lots and lots of brands who I've worked with and lots of brands with distinctive tones of voice, actually, the sort of 11 big themes, I called them the 11 primary voices. Like, you know, like sort of you can have your brand archetypes or whatever. There, I'm saying there are 11 distinctive styles of writing that sort of are fundamental to all tones of voice and once you know those and get comfortable with those uh like primary colors you can mix and match them together to make all any sort of type of voice you want um and it just felt like that is people seem to find that a really helpful way of talking about tone of voice which had previously seemed so abstract so voice box is essentially that idea in a box with all the other stuff that you need to create a tone of voice. Guides to the process of how to run a project and how to run workshops and how to do your stakeholder engagement and all of that. Creative games and tools and there's cards and stuff to help you like work out which of <coughs> excuse me, which of the eleven voices uh, feels right for your brand. And then all of the stuff you need to go, okay, so you know, with like simplifier, straight talker, fire starter, energizer, like which of these voices are right for us? If we're going to be a, a, a fire starting simplifier, uh, what are the writing techniques that sit behind those voices? And then there's all the, the stuff you need for that as well. Um, like creative exercises, practical techniques, and then how to, how to apply your voice to uh, your brand so that it has the effect that you want so it's all of that stuff it's like all of my tone of voice method and wisdom such that it is literally in a box uh, you can buy uh and it's well, it's gone really well it's been an, a year now and there are now voice boxes on every continent lots of different sorts of people using them it's mainly so uh other copywriters find it really useful for working with their clients um agencies 
uh, seems to be really helpful for them. Uh, I think particularly because if you, you know, you're a creative agency, you might be design or brand or digital or whatever. So you're used to working with clients and helping them make creative decisions and shaping uh, creative ideas, but you might not have a writer on the team. It's good to be able to have something that helps you talk about writing in a way that you can fit into your own process without having to have a sort of tone of voice person uh, around all the time. Uh, And then I found that quite a lot of sort of big brands, their marketing teams seem to find it useful to have one around on the shelf for the sorts of projects where, you know, you might be launching a new product or a proposition and you don't want to go through the whole process of working with an agency and making this a big brand project, but you just want to sharpen your thinking, run a workshop maybe. So yeah, so it's been very satisfying. We we recorded a, an episode with Dave Harland recently, and he was waxing lyrical about the uh, time he helped you demo Voicebox. Ah, amazing! Well, there you go. Yes, yes. And in fact, he, they he I can't remember who it was he was doing with. They put some photos on Twitter of them sitting around the table playing with the cards. Um, and so that's part of it in a way. Is like it's called Voicebox because it comes in a box, <laughs> and that it being completely analog is really part of it consciously for me like you sit down you have to be sitting around a table with people you get the cards out and everyone just dives in it's like opening a board game and that feels an important part of it for me I think quite often writing feels quite abstract and in your head and thinky Um, but you get a set of cards out everyone knows what you do with cards you spread them out on the table you start shuffling them and mixing them and like just making that process fun and intuitive uh, was part of it yeah you say it's like opening a board game i'd say it's like opening a board game designed by apple because it's oh very nice thank you well, we, can, I, can i quote yeah. you on that <laughs> of course you can so so we bought voice box it was a it was a little christmas present to ourselves as an agency last year and it's uh when we receive the box, I mean, the box itself is, is beautiful. I think what's within it is obviously critical and, and is key here. But when you do open it, everything is so precise and so nicely put together and designed that A, it must have taken you months, if not years, to get that put together. And B, I got all edgy about it being taken apart <laughs> <laughs> mixed up. But it's lovely. It's a stunning. It's a stunning thing. It's a stunning tool, and we we've added it to a you know a suite of little workshop techniques that we use here, and it's just it's just a brilliant brilliant thing. Oh great! Well, that's amazing to hear, and that, I think that's it. Just is really important, and even I think we. It's easy to miss that. Like lots of people, when I talk about it, go, "Oh, you could make that into an app." And it's like, well, sort of, you could. But also then the experience would be shit. Yes, exactly. Um, Because, uh, you know, a project manager would just go, all right, I'll send this around to everyone in the team and they can do this in five minutes in their lunchtime. Like, and you would like, then you'd get a rubbish conversation and people wouldn't really engage in it. It's just really like the unboxing, the like the tactile nature of it all. And there's even a thing, there's a chap called John Wilshire who runs a, a sort of innovation agency called the, the smithery and he talks about the difference between vertical and horizontal thinking uh, like basically if you're sorting ideas out 
like having stuff spread flat across a table uh, is really important. And then when you want to evaluate those ideas, you stick things on the wall and you stand back and you look at them. And that is a different thing again. And like you go, oh, of course, yes, of course, because that's what we do really instinctively. But actually, if you don't make, if you don't shape your creative process around those those things that seem so intangible, like working flat on the table, sticking things on the wall, uh, you're missing a part of the process that can really help. So yeah, so and there's a lot to be said for physically getting involved with that process rather than just doing it on a phone. Yeah. And it happens all the time with clients. So there's a particular type of workshop that I'm sure you're familiar with as an agency where, you know, the person that got you in is super excited. All the actual people that need to be in the workshop and engage with the process are very (laughs) sceptical. Yes, yeah. Or senior or busy or, you know, all of these things. And so you try and run a workshop and everyone's sitting there with their arms folded. And um, those are the sorts of workshops where I always think like, right, you turn the energy up to 10, you are super engaging. Um, I always deliberately show lots of examples of, you know, funny, bad writing. So everyone, you know, starts warming up. But also what I found is as soon as I get the voice box cards out and put them on the table, like even the people who are trying really hard to show that they're not engaged are just like up on their feet, like shuffling the stuff around going, oh, you know. There's just like, yeah, it connects to a bit of our brain which can't help itself play. It feels like that is a much underused strategy in our world, actually, of, you know, just the little things that feel like play. Yeah, I've always said I've always said that I've always been a big fan of play. You can unlock that in people during a workshop, then you're going to go full speed. Yeah, definitely. And that sort of that our instinct quite often is to go the other way. Like, you know, this is important, so we should make it feel like we're thinking hard about it. Standing at the flip chart uh, feeling. Um, yeah, no, less of that, the better. And do you enjoy using voice box yourself now? Because you must have put so much into it. Have you have you started to get stuff back from it? I really do, and it's a weird one. So although, you know, the eleven voices and quite a lot of the creative exercises in it have been part of the way I've worked with clients for a while, I like you know obviously I'd not had the nice box and the nice cards. So in a way, I have been you know a, a sort of early adopter of voice box itself. Presumably people have asked you this before, but were you worried about giving it all away as a product? Yes and no. So I think I would have wanted it to be analog anyway, because that's an important part of the creative process. But I was also aware, actually, that that was quite a helpful thing in terms of IP. You know, had the 11 voices just been in a PDF, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, nobody would have really consciously ripped it off but that sort of stuff gets passed around. Um, and so like it all being printed out and not being digital just makes that a bit cleaner. So I was less worried about it just sort of escaping into the world. But on the other hand, I wasn't at all. I sort of thought the more I can give away, I'm just a big believer in, you know, you sort of, you give away generously and uh, stuff comes back. I thought, you know, in a way, if Voicebox goes out there in the world and this means I never do another tone of voice project again, 
then that'll be fine. I'll do some other stuff. There's plenty of stuff I'm interested in. Of course, completely the opposite has happened, is that since Voicebox went out into the world, I get more calls about tone of voice work uh, than ever before. And also, I think, um, just going back to your point about wanting it to be analogue, there's we have a similar conversation or there's similar logic behind the conversations we have about uh, the direct mail work that we do. And the signalling that is attached to something, a physical product, where clearly a lot of time, care, attention and resource has gone into, is something that just simply cannot be replicated on digital channels. So when you when you put the voice box down on your boardroom table and you start to lift the pieces out, it feels so important and significant that it almost warrants and demands your attention immediately in a way that an app interface never could. Yeah, I think that's really right. That's really right. You know, it's no coincidence that the last few years, as digital things get more and more beautiful, uh, but also easier and easier to make, you know, that the hipster artisan craft small batch Etsy, like all of this as well. Like we're all so like, you know, publishing has got beautiful. Uh, books are amazing now, incredibly designed, you know, the thought that goes into the paper and the bindings and the, you know, so as uh, eBooks and Kindle and digital reading has exploded so it's also gone the other way because we just we need stuff that we can touch and feel and you're right it's a way of you know it just shows thought and like how seriously you take things yeah so i mean our um uh podcast we recorded with jane evans uh we talk about vinyl and, and the significance of vinyl making a comeback and, and we just put it down to the fact that people assumed that music being streamed was the answer and it is in some instances but it just boils it down to just that one element of music and it completely takes away all of that tactileness the physical product the album covers i mean god you get so nostalgic thinking about all the old cds even let alone yeah. the big album yeah. covers that you used to collect and proudly display and it's it's a similar um similar logic yeah it's completely and that there's like there's not just the tactile nature of it there's the the ritual that is part of the experience, you know, it takes, if you're going to pick an album to put on, you have, it's slow, you know, you have to pick it, like, take it apart, take it out the sleeve, you have to hold it in that particular way so that you don't get, you know, greasy fingers all over it. Then you have to decide which side you have to commit, side A or side B. And then, yeah, it's not as, just because it's, not as smooth, uh, you're making all these decisions and you're committing to it in a different way. And that is exactly what's going on with something like Voicebox. You are committing to a process that has its own rewards and joys and all the rest of it. But it's also like, oh, we're doing this thing now. I've got the box out. Yeah. Um, let's quickly touch on that explains things then. So what you currently do now if people want to work with you, is 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 that explain things? Uh, is is it an agency? What what exactly is it that, that that is offered under that roof? It's so I like <laughs> I. It's an agency. It's an agency largely of me, with some other people who come and work with me and specialize in different things. And there are some other people who run 
voice box workshops. So it's always yeah, it's always a difficult thing, isn't it? Like it's, clients generally want to work specifically with me because that's been the recommendation. Um, but also, uh, there's not enough of me to go round. So it's nice to be able to spread it out. But also, I don't want to run an agency largely. Uh, I did that for a while, and uh, it was great. But it was an awful lot of time spent on keeping the machine ticking over. Uh, and that all of that needs from, you know, finance and admin to HR and legal and uh, all of that back room stuff, which is super important. But I much prefer doing the work and I am much better value for my clients getting stuck in and doing the work. Um, so, yeah, so I'd, like basically it's trying to keep a balance where I have the minimum minimal amount of process, but don't just get stuck with it just being me is that does that even answer your question that's like a very complicated way of saying it's sort of an agency yes, <laughs> but really. yeah but this is fine this 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 uh episode can this isn't a piece of brand comms this can be a bit more like writing a piece of fiction we can we can take, we can do, we can take the scenic route <laughs> it's fine it's fine they, they totally explains things and you're talking to another you know to, to i'm i'm i guess i'm doing what you did do and I can totally understand uh, your points. And you're right, there is so much to it that, you know, perhaps until you do it, you're not necessarily aware of all the, everything that happens in the engine room and the admin and the HR. Um, so it makes a lot of sense, makes a lot of sense. And if, you can, and if you can still do the good stuff and the stuff that you get excited about and s- supplement it with other resources, then that makes complete sense yeah and i suppose you know for people who are interested in like that the sort of process of it i if i think about it like you know so i've got a virtual assistant and she's amazing and she keeps loads of things running um and then i've got you know accountants and uh, business coach and all of those people so in the sort of 21st century diffuse network digital remote working way it's an agency it just so happens that it's me doing the creative work. Um, I don't employ those people, although we work in a sort of networked way. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of networks, then we should probably give a quick nod to the um, Twitter copywriting network because that is a, a, a booming thing, and it's a thing full of not only previous call to action guests, Vicky Ross, Glenn Fisher, Dave Harland, but just a, a, a fantastic and very unique, I would suggest community of people it is it's it's been one of the real joys actually for me of uh leaving agency land and setting up by myself is just sort of falling into that community without sort of knowing it was there or planning to and i mean it makes sense doesn't it like there is a lot of people who spend a lot of time largely by themselves uh in front of computers writing all day um and it's a great way of keeping in touch and sharing the pain and joys and thoughts. And, you know, it's so like it's just a big remote working connected network of people who happen to do that on Twitter. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's fab. It's fab. Um, and just a great way of getting support. Uh, I mean, Vicky Ross particularly has just sort of created an amazing community out of where there wasn't one before. Yeah. Really good. Really good. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions, Nick. 
So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So Carly has asked, do you have any words that you find yourself using more often than others? And conversely, are there any words that you would never use in any circumstances? We might have used a couple of them in the warm-up, actually. Yeah. Um, I think of words I don't use. So there's that. It's weird, isn't it? If you ask people, the word that comes up the most often is moist. Everyone seems yeah, to hate the word yeah, it's moist. Not. Except if you're talking about a cake, then it's totally fine. <laughs> um, I have a weird aversion to the words, as we, you mentioned at the start, uh, Siggy and Uni as uh, abbreviations for cigarette and university. And so for some reason, I always have to say those two words out in full, uh, which is incredibly tedious because they're really long and make me sound like a right pedant. My gran always used to use the word slacks for trousers, which when I was a kid used to make me shiver. And she had this brilliant phrase, which is presumably from the days when uh, travelling by car and coach was a bigger deal than um, it was uh, in her later years. She would ask my mom, Janet, are we travelling in slacks? <laughs> which I just thought was a fantastic phrase and also really made me shiver. Yeah. Words that I say a lot, I don't know. I reckon uh, other people who listen to me would be able to pinpoint those. I find a word that is super useful that I wish I didn't feel so connected to is stakeholder. That is actually super useful because there is no short, succinct way of saying, you know, all the people that have a vested interest in this project uh, that need to have their say or be connected to stakeholder yeah that feels like the the sort of corporate jargon world word that is actually integrally part of what i need to do but you're right it's so broad that it does capture everyone how else are you going to do it i know it's well it's it's super useful but it feels instinctively like it should be one of those like impactful uh sort of words that we should like shiver and pretend we hate but actually it's really useful uh question two is genuinely and by a stretch the longest question we've ever been sent so deep breath this is from charlie by the way charlie says i read in an interview that your favorite word is the japanese word kodawari which you then say apparently means sincere unwavering focus on what you are doing with the intent of making it perfect while knowing that perfection is impossible and the work itself is the most crucial thing of all. All that captured in just one word. I have always been curious about language differences, having been told Russian classic novels are just more nuanced if read in Russian. Do you, do you ever ponder that English, even though it is seen as the eminent language of the globe, is not the most economical and best suited to convey stories, feelings, moments... And have you ever considered or tried to learn a new language and write in it? Whew. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Moving on. Yeah. So, well, uh, God, how do we, where do we start? Like, that is a whole podcast in there. Uh, it is always endlessly fascinating that, oh, no, oh, look, you know, German has a word for the thing on the end of the thing that turns. 
um, and, you know, or, you know, supposedly the Inuit have 50 words for snow, which apparently is not true. I mean, it's just not surprising, is it? That, like, if a thing is really important to you, uh, you have lots of ways of talking about it. It seems to me, and, like, what I hear, what I've heard from, you know, people who speak English as a second language is also one of the amazing things about English is it's so incredibly reconfigurable and things that you know that idea of oh you couldn't say that in German or you know it wouldn't be possible to phrase it that way in Japanese and as an English speaker you're like wow why not why can't you just hack the words around and make up some new sounds or you know like we do in English all the time so yeah it's just there's sort of different things going on I uh, I'm learning Spanish at the moment, partly because of uh, just a crippling embarrassment about being um, a British person who doesn't speak another language, which is a terrible cliche, uh, partly in reaction to Brexit and the sort of narrowing of the cultural mind of like, well, <laughs> what can I do positively other than just sort of rant about it? Like, let's do something that connects you to, and I did deliberately want to see, you know, what, how does it change the way you think? I've written precisely one thing in Spanish because my Spanish is rubbish, which is a song that contains about six words. Uh, it's, um, I was on a writing retreat a few weeks ago. Um, and I, I wrote a song, the writing retreat was in Spain. I wrote a song to remind everyone to write their daily pages, uh, which now I can't quite remember. Cada dia, cada dia, every day, every day. Um, Escribir las páginas, I think. Uh, write the pages, write the pages. Uh, cada día, cada día. It's the next level up for a writer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it constantly amazes and humbles me to be running workshops with clients who are there to become more creative in English and it's not even their first language. Like, blows my mind. And a lot of, actually, just to go back to Voicebox, quite a few Voicebox customers are agencies... European agencies working in English. And I think that's suddenly like, oh, of course, I can see how that would be really useful. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. I was going to say, as that answered the question, but God knows, don't repeat it. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just check again. The final part then, Nick, is our, our four pertinent posers. Question one being, what advice would you give to your younger self? Absolutely none. He wouldn't listen anyway. <laughs> Good. <laughs> He's on his own. He's on his own. Yeah, deal with it. <laughs> That's a lovely. I can't remember who said it. It might have been. I want to say somebody like Goethe. Um, there's a thing about you know when you are the the younger self uh, imagines one's older self and looks up to him with reverence, um, <laughs> whereas one's older self looks back at one's younger self and thinks basically what a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we better go to question two then. If, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I don't know. Um, instinctively, there are lots of things that you think it would, you know, the world would be a better place if you didn't get briefs that were actually sort of political internal briefs from the client or um, it would be better if uh, you didn't get ridiculous deadlines or that our industry wasn't infatuated with the next thing in digital. 
or blah de blah de blah. But you know what? Like, like everything has its problems. Um, it's all part of the mad jumble and gloriousness. Uh, so nothing. I wouldn't banish anything. Are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? There must be. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, do you know what? The book I find myself recommending the most is Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, which is a few years old now, and they're, like the basic idea is what? how do you create sticky ideas? You know, and there's a little bit of sort of political campaigning going on there. There's a little bit of, you know, nudge theory, public health. You know, how do you get people to um, remember stuff? But I just think that is a much more helpful way of thinking about being a writer or a communicator is to think uh, it is my job to create sticky ideas. And sometimes that stickiness is created through being super simple. Sometimes it's created by telling a story sometimes it's created by um you know having the right metaphor so yeah i think i i think like that's how i think about what i do is i'm in the job of creating sticky ideas i'm not a writer or a storyteller or a communicator or a copywriter um, so that that's the one book made to stick that i think everyone should read uh rory sutherland's new book whose name the name of which i've forgotten the gold one alchemy alchemy Feels like a really interesting moment in that, you know, the sort of whole behavioral economics stuff that he's been interested in. Um, it's just there's tons of really good stuff in that. Did you have the, the physical book or the audio book? The physical book, um, although ironically, I found quite annoying because it's big, fat, hardback with a shiny cover. So it was one of the few instances where I was thought, I wish I'd bought this on my Kindle. <laughs> brilliant well listeners of this podcast are going to be wincing because i've said this numerous times but i highly recommend people get the audiobook version because it's rory narrating the book and because it's rory and a microphone there's a lot more extra content <laughs> than you get in the book oh interesting oh that is great and, and he earned that. more royalties so he told me he was happy for me to plug the audiobook excellent <laughs> yeah okay brilliant so made to stick alchemy and obviously the exploding boy and other tiny tales which we'll we'll link to all of those in the listing we always dedicate every episode to someone nick and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your point of view to our guest so would you do the honors can i dedicate this episode i can dedicate it to my kids cool i don't know if that's the 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 appropriate sort of type of person to dedicate it to there george and laurie um i mentioned george at the start with his uh exciting pokemon go toilet uh, <laughs> <revelation>. <laughs> do you know what? the reason i'm going to do this is because uh a couple of years ago i wrote a book about toast about 15 years ago um as in grilled bread and um this is sort of just been like occasionally it comes back into print and out of print and like almost nobody but dies it buys it but there is a national toast day now and a couple of years ago radio 2 obviously decided they were going to do a thing on national toast day and they wanted to speak to an expert about toast 
I think what they really wanted to do was set up some kind... They wanted somebody who knew about the science of toast, about how to make the perfect slice of toast. Um, I'm not an expert on toast. I wrote a comedy book about toast. So they called me up and said, would you come on the show? This was, what's his name? Chris Evans. Uh, I was like, yeah, all right, but I'm not an expert on toast. <laughs> I've just made some gags about grilled bread about 15 years ago. And they were like, no, no, that's totally fine. That's who we were looking for. And then obviously what they really did was went away and found a professor of food science and got him on the show instead. And my kids, out of this, like, were enraged and out of a sense of loyalty, they have never listened to Radio Two ever again. <laughs> Amazing! So I'm like, look, it's really fine. That's just how booking guests works on the radio. They're like, no, we are never listening to. It. So um, I feel like they can now listen to this podcast as though it was the radio. Oh, fantastic! I'm very happy to dedicate this episode to George and Laurie. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. As a final call to action, then, everyone can head over to this episode's listing where we've shared links to everything discussed in the last hour. That includes That Explains Things, the brilliant voice box, which I highly recommend, all of the books Nick's recommended. How else can people get more Nick Parker? I think that's probably it. ThatExplainsThings.com. I'm at Nick Parker on Twitter. Um, that's probably all the places I live. Perfect. Well, we'll share all of those. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining. It's been a real pleasure and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Not at all. It's been great. Thanks for having me. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and keep the questions and guest requests coming in. <laughs> to get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or simply email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!